Hi, this is Michael Gebert. So our campaign in the last episode to reverse the effects of that lone two-star rating, our only non-five-star rating, has been successful. We now display five full stars again in the little graphic. But still, only a tiny fraction of listeners have left a rating. Ratings, reviews, and subscriptions are important because they make us more likely to show up as a suggestion when people look for a vintage film podcast. So please, subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and if you have an iTunes account, leave us a rating and write a few words. Thanks. He had to make films. He lived to make films. Everything other than filmmaking, sex, food, fatherhood, merit, whatever it was, everything was secondary. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. Our series on Hungarians in Hollywood continues in this episode, as we talk about a director who made more great movies than almost anybody, yet remains something of a mystery. I'll talk with Alan K. Rohde, author of a new biography of Michael Cortez. And make sure you wander into this gin joint every time it's open for business. Subscribe at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher. Now, you played Nitrateville Radio for her, you can play it for me. Play it at... Nah, I'm not gonna say it. Casablanca, city of hope and despair, located in French Morocco in North Africa. The meeting place of adventurers, fugitives, criminals, refugees, lured into this danger-swept oasis by the hope of escape to the Americas. I was willing to shoot Captain Reno, and I'm willing to shoot you. All right, Major, you asked for it. Casablanca, maybe the most beloved film of all time. If you made this alone, your place in Hollywood history would be secure. But imagine that you also made... Curtain going up. Curtain going up. Places, please. Officer, stand by. England, in the gallant days when history hung on the flight of an arrow or the slash of a sword. When one man alone dared challenge the might of his country's oppressors. Robin Hood. Iron rails to Kansas. Iron nerves from there on as you head for the Santa Fe Trail where nothing grows but trouble. Unfurling the glorious saga of the boldest buccaneer the world has ever known, Warner Brothers bring you the flaming story of the Seahawk. The slums of the big town, as packed with drama and danger as the squalid streets of some native quarter. From the meeting of this strange pair evolves the most devastating blast of drama to hit the screen since public enemy, angels with dirty faces. Mildred. This is Bob. Kind, gentle, sweet, soft-spoken. Oh, God! 
I won't have it. The two greatest figures in show business, Bing and Danny, as two ex-GIs who form the perfect partnership. Your Michael Cortez directed all of these and more. But how did a man mainly famous for his mangled English and hot temper prove to have such a touch with actors in classic films? Alan K. Rohde attempts to answer that question in his new book, Michael Cortez, A Life in Film, from the University Press of Kentucky. I spoke with him recently. All right, well, I'm really enjoying the book. You know, obviously... A, a fan of Curtis films because everybody is. Uh, oh, and the first thing I learned was how to pronounce it correctly, Curtis, which I'll try. Yeah, it's Curtis, <laughs> and uh, you know it's interesting. Um, his uh, granddaughter, uh, John Meredith Lucas's daughter, eldest daughter Liz McGillicuddy Lucas, uh, said, "Alan, whatever you do, could you really make it clear that?" Curtis was not how he pronounced his name. <laughs> and so I said, okay, I'll make sure that that's in there. I, I started kind of uh, in a way to, to, to uh, use the book as a crusade to get everyone to pronounce his name correctly. But I have to say that uh, I've been kind of a failure at that because I've called him Curtis for so long, it's really difficult for me to to uh, repronounce it correctly all the time. But the correct pronunciation is Cortez, and and as as you found out, he was born Emmanuel Kaminer, and then Merhali Cortez uh, to Magyar his name and and kind of cloak the Jewishness of it. And then when he went to Austria in 1919, it became Michael Cortez. And then the spelling was changed when he went to work for Harry and Jack Warner in 1926, uh, which really, in looking at the studio correspondence, happened almost immediately upon his hire. And I don't know whether the, the spelling of uh, Cortez as, as he had it, which was uh, K-E-R-T-E-S-Z, uh, connotated some sort of uh, foreign or German uh, anti-German sentiment from World War One that the Warners were concerned about. I mean, who knows? But uh, it it was changed to C-U-R-T-I-Z uh, when he came to work for the Warners in 26. And once they said it, that was what it was. Yes, as many things that Harry and Jack <laughs> did with their studio, you know. So, yes, that was how it was. Well, let's talk about his early days in Hungary first. Um, I thought there's there's something that's practically the rosebud of his life in those early chapters, which is that, you know, here he is in Hungary. There's this community there of, you know, significant people like the playwright. Uh, now we'll see if I can pronounce this one. Ferenc Molnar. Um, right. And a lot of people that he would later work with is Victor Varconi, who's in the in the Seahawk, S.C. Zakal, yeah. of course, of Casablanca, all these people. Bel Lugosi, Bel Lugosi. Lugosi. Um, yes, absolutely. Alexander Korda hanging around, people like that. And they mm -hmm. all go to Cafe New York. Everybody comes to Cafe mm -hmm. New York. So yeah, just uh, like everyone come, everyone came to Rick's in exactly. Casablanca. Everyone came to the Cafe New York in in Budapest, and that was 
I, I, I do go on in, in some manner of detail and context about the whole uh, uh, cultural uh, phenomenon of coffee houses in Budapest during that period of the late 1890s and through World War One into the 20s and uh and so forth and uh, i even i even use a couple quotes of andre de toth uh in talking about the cafe new york and and in fact the cafe new york has been completely restored to its original luster and is now quite a tourist stop and when i was in budapest doing research uh on curtis in 2011 my wife and i had coffee and and uh, some dessert in there and it's it's a beautiful beautiful uh uh venue beautiful place but that was that was kind of the the coffee houses generally and specifically for show business people the cafe new york in budapest was the incubator of uh, creative people getting together and talking scheming laughing arguing uh whatever so it, it did play a big role in his development so here he is in hungary he um was trained as an actor, but quickly moved to directing, realizing mm-hmm. that he, that he just didn't have the the ineffable qualities of an actor, but could could probably beat them out of other actors. And and he goes on to become a you know kind of a mystery as an American director in that his English is not that good. He's not particularly well liked, but somehow gets everybody's best work out of them. So it was really interesting to me to kind of see where he came from as a director in that early Hungarian cinema, which is something we don't know because it pretty much disappeared after a certain point in the 30s. So, yeah, t- let's talk about how did how did Cortez become Cortez in this environment? Well, I think he he recognized, first off, he was he was drawn to show business where he grew up. He was a stone's throw away from what would become the Magyar Theater. He was near the showbiz district of the uh, playhouses and uh, opera houses and so on and so forth. And he actually grew up as a kid running around uh, giving out like uh, the equivalent then of playbills, candles, uh, running food and coffee backstage for the performers. So he grew up literally weaned in show business. I believe his mother was some sort of uh, operatic singer. Uh, then he uh, he he did ended up depending on which set of 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 stories you want to believe he was associated with a circus and worked in a circus at some point uh so he learned performing in front of an audience and that end of of show business so he really took to that and he saw some of the earliest films ever made he was sitting in city park in budapest watching or or in a in a uh coffee house watching lumere brothers films around the turn of the century. And he was, he was very struck by the possibility, the unlimited possibilities of telling a story in images and in film without the geographical confines of the stage, because he had learned, uh, obviously, as a classically trained actor who went to the uh, Royal Academy of, of, of Acting, and in those days, in order to become an actor, you had to have this professional pedigree. You had to be, in effect, educated and licensed by the state as a doctor or a dentist or a plumber or anything. Acting was looked at as a professional, as a profession. So he went through that pipeline 
but he he latched on to movies right away. And as you pointed out, he in his own mind, there were things that he saw that he knew he couldn't realize himself as an actor, but that he could as a director and as a filmmaker. So he ended up making his first film in 1912. I believe it's called Yesterday, Today and Tomorrow uh, about the evils of alcohol. Uh, you know, because films in those days had this very ham-handed moral lesson or cultural uplift from Hungary. And the director either took sick or was otherwise unavailable and, and Curtis stepped into the breach and he was on his way. So uh, he was he was an individual that that was grounded in many phases of show business at a very, very early age. And he recognized that film and movies were the coming things. And one of the interesting things was finding these articles that Curtiz wrote for various movie magazines dating back to before World War One, and then having uh, my, my friend and colleague, Laszlo Kristen, who was an enormous help for this part of the book, translate a lot of these. And I also went to the film archive in Budapest that was extremely cooperative. They took all their Curtiz material laid it out and i had somebody there translating as i was pounding away on an ipad uh so all of this was good but i found it fascinating that people like uh uh Curtiz and Al Al alexander corda as he was later known the knighted film mogul who grew up right down the block from Curtiz, although he was six or seven years younger um uh, they were writing articles in movie magazines in Hungary about the auteur theory <laughs> a long time <laughs> before Andrew Saris was. Uh, so I, I found all of this fascinating, uh, of course. Well, and that's really interesting that, I mean, you don't think of Cortez as someone who was a film intellectual or particularly introspective about it, but there he is in those early days, very clearly laying out principles of how he sees a movie should be put together and there's a great quote later in the book by a uh, Warner Brothers screenwriter named Robert Buckner, who says, Mike could make a picture when he didn't know what it was about, which. Yeah, is, he had is... this. He, you're absolutely right. He had this. By that time, he had this. Now, you're talking about a guy that Holen in part made, by my count, 181 movies. And there may be more out there because Laszlo and I found a film that he made that was listed in um, one of the Hungarian movie news magazines that had not been part of his, um, his filmography. And there may be more out there that he did. So Curtiz, by the time he had been at Warner brothers, like for through the 1930s, where in the early thirties, he was directing an average of six films every year. Because at that point during the Depression, Warners was you know grinding out the films like sausage to keep the product in their movie theaters and so forth. Uh, he had such a sense of film. And uh, another person that, that made that observation was his um, colleague at Warner Brothers, another ex-actor, uh, William Dieterle. And Dieterle, in an interview, said, you know, uh, if you couldn't make progress at Warner Brothers and you couldn't stick to the schedule within some amount of reasonableness, even if they, even if you didn't have a script or the script was being rewritten, they would replace you usually with Mike. And he said, Curtis could finish a film at 11 o'clock and start a new one at one o'clock. And he said, I couldn't do that. I had to have my script, but Curtis 
he didn't always know what he was doing, but he had such an instinct for film, he could just do it. And uh, um, I, I think in my book, in the prologue, I described Curtiz is yen for filmmaking as an incandescent mania, <laughs> uh, because literally he it was almost like uh, taking taking heroin away from a drug addict. He had to make films. He lived to make films. Uh, and as I go through uh, his life in the book, uh, everything. Uh, everything other than filmmaking, sex, food, fatherhood, merit, whatever it was, everything was secondary to making films. And, and that was how he approached his life work. And that's why, that's why so many people, as you pointed out at the top of this, know him through his movies, but they don't know him hardly at all. Well, let's talk about the earliest uh, film of his that I've seen is Sodom and Gomorrah, which is a biblical epic of the 20s, the kind of thing that they did a lot of in the mm -hmm. 20s. Uh, what is it, mm -hmm. 19, 1921, 22, something like that? Yes, yes, that's correct. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's it's well made. I don't know that I got any sense of a deep sense of how he dealt with actors there. How do you evaluate him as a as a director in, at this point in the 20s in Hungary? Well, uh, it, it, well, first off, Sodom and Gomorrah was made in Vienna, and it was made after Curtiz left um, Budapest and left Hungary at the end of World War I. Uh, one cannot exaggerate the cataclysmic effect that World War I had on Curtiz and people of his generation, the, the people that we talked about, like, Lugosi and and Zakal and all of these folks. I mean, Curtiz grew up in a empire ruled over by an emperor, a Germanic emperor, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, which was this huge, literally, you had Western Europe and you had Austria-Hungary and then you had Russia. And so at the end of World War I, uh, Austria-Hungary as one of the um, uh, central powers in World War One, on the losing side, was completely dismembered and you know cobbled off into all these other all these different countries, and Hungary shrunk. And then there was this great upheaval where they had a um, communist government, and then the rightists took over. Romania invaded, and there were a lot of people that were killed. Curtiz, because he had served in the army, was Jewish, and so forth. Uh, he want, he got out of the country in 1919, went to Vienna where he worked for uh, a fellow named uh, Count Kolarat who founded uh, Sasha Films. And, and Kolarat's a very interesting, uh, interesting fellow, really the godfather of uh, Austrian cinema. And Kolarat really bankrolled Curtiz and let him make uh, many, many of these films. And in particular, the spectacular films uh, such as Sodom and Gomorrah and then later Moon of Israel, uh, Young Mahardis, all the, uh, these big spectacular films with huge casts, thousands of extras. Uh, and and Kolarat was very well fixed and just kept the money gushing. So Sodom and Gomorrah originally was a very complicated a whole bunch of different acts uh, into a modern story 
and then a story having to do with the Syrian princess, and then the the biblical story of of uh, Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and Lot's wife and and all of that. Well, what has happened through the years, the Syrian part of it has lost, been lost. So even the restored film, uh, which has been painstakingly put together over a period of years, isn't the original film. So it's kind of hard to get a concept of that. Certainly, Curtiz, in those years, the camera was relatively stationary there were no dollies. There were, you know, the, the, the equipment was a lot cruder than it would be in his future career. And uh, when you see this, you see all of these people, all of these things in a very, very kind of complicated story. But the sweep and grandeur of Curtiz's cinema still comes through with that. Of course, the other agenda that he had in making all of these films in Austria uh, at least initially, was building up his wife, Lucy Durain, and turning her into a movie star. So there was this certain, uh, you know, he married her when uh, Durain was uh, 17 years old in Budapest. She was also Hungarian. And there was a certain um, um, Professor Higgins flavor, Pygmalion flavor of critiques with this very, very young wife. And they had a daughter, Kitty, that was born in 1915, where he's making all these movies with her, turning her, uh, turning her into a movie star. So by the time he made Sodom and Gomorrah, she was the central figure, the star, but about two thirds, three quarters of the way through the picture, which went on for over a year. And I go into the details of the sets being destroyed by a windstorm and keeping everyone on salary and so on and so forth. Uh, his marriage to Durain fell apart. And so she left after he had turned her into a movie star. So it's, it's a big, unwieldy spectacle, but you see flashes of the future Curtiz that we came to know so well, uh, particularly through his, his uh, swashbuckling and his spectacles at Warner Brothers, like Robin Hood and the Seahawk and Dodge City, where he's working with large masses and groups of people. So... Um, when he couldn't move the camera, he moved the people around. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, and it's also, you know, he has a, a certain reputation as being, uh, at the, at the least careless with, uh, human life and safety and things like that on sets. Maybe not all that unusual for the times generally. Um, although I think Noah's Ark is known as a picture in particular where a lot of people, may have lost their lives during the production of it. And that really seems to date back to those spectacles where, you know, in that post-war era, human life was cheap and movies were expensive. So he he pushed a lot of things. Oh, he did. Curtiz's mantra was realism uh, and at all costs. And as Hal Moore, who was the pioneer cameraman at Warner Brothers who shot the jazz singer, and who also shot a number of Curtiz's early silent films, he said, you know, for Mike, that meant, hey, if the cowboy had to fall into the cactus, well, <laughs> and if the baby had to cry, well. Uh, now, as you pointed out, that wasn't totally unusual, uh, particularly uh, the callousness shown towards getting children to do things 
in movies by directors and parents and so forth. I think Curtiz took it to extremes, and I think his his reputation became embellished by this, but not without reason. Uh, I know on Sodom and Gomorrah, he was showing an extra how to fall, and they were on this huge you know, set that was built on the side of an old trash dump in Vienna with these stairs. I mean, it was like an Assyrian temple uh, type of motif, and he shoved an extra against a railing, and the guy fell over the railing and hurt himself very badly. And of course, in those days, there were no workplace safety laws, unions, anything. And they ended up having to pay this fellow off that got hurt. Uh, also on Sodom and Gomorrah, they had, uh, that I go into detail, from Walter, Walter Slazak, whose career started uh, with being hired by Curtiz after a chance encounter in a, Vienna's, a Viennese bar. You know, he said at one point they had uh, over 10,000 extras, you know, and then Slazak said, you know, that means you have to have a thousand makeup people. You have to have hundreds of wardrobe people and how expensive. Uh, so in effect, when Curtiz was making these huge movies in Austria and the inflation, the post-war inflation hit Germany and then Austria and went through Europe. In effect, he and Count Colorat were running an employment agency right. <laughs> for the yeah. entire country for, with this film. So it, it's it's uh, it's really an incredible story on how these these gigantic uh, movies got made uh, in a day way way before special effects and CGI and any of this stuff. He carried that with him throughout his career. He loved working with large scenes and as Hal Wallace. Uh, I think I remember a memo from the Adventures of Robin Hood where Curtiz took over the production halfway through and uh, Wallace cut a memo to Henry Blanke, who was the uh, on-set producer. And he said, we really got to watch Mike with this because he'll get carried away with the great production values of this of this um, of this film because he just loves to work with mobs and props of this type. (laughs) Yeah. Well, let's talk about another thing about uh, Curtis personally at this point, which is that, uh, you know, he was a bit of a scoundrel, really. I mean, he he took the advantages of Hollywood, you know, powerful Hollywood men, the kind of thing we're hearing so much about right now. Uh, you know, he didn't he didn't take a lunch break. He took a tryst break during a lot of <laughs> shoots. Yeah left a uh, a fair number of illegitimate children or children from wives he discarded uh, behind in Europe and various places along the way. Uh, you know, had an affair with Errol Flynn's future wife, Lily Demita, at one point along the way, uh, you know, which really mm-hmm. makes you realize what a small town movie making can be. Well, you know, I, I think you, you know, and I'm not, Curtiz was definitely not, going to uh, be the stand-in for Robert Young on Father Knows Best. Uh, he, he, um, uh, he had relationships with a number of women uh, during the 1920s uh, outside of his marriage. He was married to Lucy Durain. They got divorced in 22 or 23. And then in rapid succession, he had uh, a son, a daughter, and a son by three different women. And uh, my research indicates none of these women were coerced in any way, and he stayed on good terms with them. But 
he had these children and he treated these children as something that had to be managed at a distance with money, essentially. Um, when he came to America, uh, he uh, ended up marrying Bess Meredith, the great um, silent film scenarist who worked on Ben-Hur. And he met Bess, I think, on the set of Don Juan in 26, what they were making with uh, John, Warners was making with John Barrymore when he got there. And Bess subsequently worked with him on his first movie, The Third Degree, and then, of course, was the scenarist on Noah's Ark. And Bess and Curtis stayed married for 30 years, and they were married in 29, and they finally separated near the end of his life in, in 60. So I think it was over 30 years. But uh, he and Bess had this very, very close relationship that was less of a um, traditional marriage and married couple and more like collaborative pals because they got along well. And Bess was the person that uh, she was a charter member of the Academy. And when Curtis got there, she was the one whose career was very prominent and he was just a you know an unknown European director in Jodhpur's that couldn't speak English and so she really helped him throughout his career on scripts and on studio politics uh, on his memoranda and so forth and although there's very little uh, physical documentation of that partnership between the two of them it was nonetheless very very real and very significant unfortunately uh, as Curtiz's son-in-law, John Meredith Lucas, Bess Meredith's son, uh, who grew up with Curtiz as a stepfather. One can only imagine what that was like at times. <laughs> but Curtiz uh, uh, had what uh, John Lucas, Jack Lucas, uh, termed the European view of marriage, that uh, you took care of your wife, comfort of home and so on and so forth. But being a man sexually, he did whatever he wanted to do. So there were uh, rumors of all these casual relationships, as you mentioned, the sex breaks uh, during lunch and, and Curtis never hated eating lunch. He hated stopping for lunch. He used to call the, the actors and the people on the crew that wanted to break for lunch, lunch bums. Oh, these lunch bums. Why are they wasting my time? I'm behind schedule. I want to make a movie. Let's go. Um, and, uh, and he had relationships uh, towards the end of his life with uh, two different women. And one of them, uh, Jill Gerard, is still with us. I've talked to her. And she bore Curtis, his last child, a daughter in the 50s when he was close to 70 and she was 20. And uh, she loved him. Uh, she absolutely, she absolutely adored him. She's changed her name and put Curtis on her name and, uh, she loved him. Uh, there was another actress named, um, Anitra Stevens, uh, who Curtis had a relationship with, uh, her, I think her other name was Ann Stewart and Curtis actually put her in several of his pictures, most notably, uh, Anitra Stevens played Queen Nefertiti in the Egyptian in 1954. And, you know, Zanuck had his mistress uh, uh, in one of the leading roles and Curtis had his mistress in the supporting right, role. Right. I, I think I call that only in Hollywood. Right. But, uh, <laughs> and he ended up he ended up buying a house for Ann Stewart. He ended up leaving most of his estate to her. So 
uh, I, I think Curtis um, was uh, dissolute in his relationship, certainly with a lot of his children. He had a very, very difficult time uh, with his first, uh, with the mother of his first uh, son, Michael, who was born in 1920, and um, uh, to a woman who worked in a bank in Vienna who named uh, Matilde Forster. And uh, she was very relentless in ensuring that Curtis uh, fulfilled his obligations as the father of her son by making sure he paid child support. And that whole scenario that played out over a long period of time uh, was, was very detrimental to Curtis and, and cannot be defended, his behavior uh, in not paying child support and then admitting paternity, denying paternity. And then when he died, he denied paternity of his last daughter in his will. So this, this was a guy that, that compartmentalized his life. Uh, and, uh, he had some traits that, as you pointed out, were not, were not admirable to say the least, but they fit in well at Warner brothers, I'm sure. So, uh, <laughs> where they, well, you know, I, I have to say, I have to say with all of the news that's been printed about everything, I took exception to, uh, there was an article recently in the New York times that compared Jack Warner with Harvey Weinstein. And uh, I, I don't feel that that's a valid comparison at all. I mean, Jack Warner was certainly not someone that you'd like to go camping with or someone that, I mean, he could be, Jack could be very, very ruthless, uh, ruthless within his own family. But as Betty Davis pointed out, Mr. Warner didn't sleep with the help. And with the exception of one affair that he had in the 1920s with Marilyn Miller, he did not get involved with actresses and ingenues and people who worked in the studio to what I found out. So, uh, uh, and believe me, I'm not setting myself up as a defender of the virtue of Jack Warner, but, uh, I, I do have to say that the comparisons to the Harvey Weinstein to the world, uh, comparing Jack Warner. Now, Daryl Zanuck, that's a closer comparison, but, but Jack Warner had a lot of faults, but, uh, uh, being being a sexual predator, I don't think was one. It's the world against us and us against the world. Those of you in favor of these articles, raise your right hands and say aye! Aye! You pirates are used to taking what you want without the formality of purchase. I advise you to go back to your ladies at Tortuga who are thrilled by your bow lawless ways. What matters is that now I own you as once you own me. You're mine, do you understand? Mine to do with as I please. All right, well, let's, uh, let's go back to to the things we like about uh, Warner Brothers in particular. Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> well, movies. I think Warner Brothers was, I think the Warner Brothers was the greatest studio uh, during the 1930s and the 1940s, uh, period. And, and I think it was, um, uh, well, let, let me put it this way. Do you think MGM would have people that look like Ed, and sounded like Betty Davis and Edward G. Robinson working for them? <laughs> right, right. I don't, yeah. I don't think so. And, and Warner brothers was gutsy. It was working class. Uh, they, the Warners, the brothers themselves banded together early on in their lives and took on the world. And you saw that character seep through in a lot of their movies in the 1930s. 
And the other thing that the Warners did that I find very admirable is they were the first people, uh, first studio heads, certainly in Hollywood, that recognized Nazism and fascism for what it really was. And, and I'm talking about in the 1930s. I mean, Harry Warner wanted to make a documentary about concentration camps in the 30s. And he was blocked by the uh, uh, MPAA and Joseph Breen at the product, the sen- chief censor at the Production Code Authority, and um, and by the other moguls that didn't want to give up the German film market. And uh, Warner's uh, crusade, and I don't think that's a uh, a poorly used word, against fascism, Nazism, and so forth. Uh, during beginning in the late 30s and early 40s, uh, I think was very admirable. But that being said, it was a great environment for movie making. Uh, it was it was a different time, and and certainly Curtiz couldn't have understudied with two better producers than Daryl Zanuck, followed by Hal Wallace. Uh, and uh, it's just a terrific, terrific uh, place for someone who is making movies to end up and work for those two fellows. Well, and ultimately, really, I think if, if you think of anybody as the quintessential Warner Brothers director, it's Cortez. I mean, you know, Absolutely. All, all the virtues that you think of as his films are the Warner Brothers virtues, that vitality, you know, and the speed and snappiness and a certain amount. The of- energy, absolutely. The energy, the camera work, the camera movement, the dissolve, the performances. I think what gets overlooked is Curtiz's ability to work with actors because he had that European um, mentality that actors were merely marionettes in the hands of the director. Well, uh, you know, after after working for uh, Zanuck and Wallace, where they considered scripts to be sacrosanct parchment, not to be trifled with, and then working with very powerful actors as things changed in Hollywood and the actors became more powerful like uh, Cagney and Betty Davis and Bogart and so forth. He was able to adapt to the star system uh, that he nurtured and nurtured him. And he was able to get terrific performances uh, out of all these actors. In addition, the people that he discovered, and I use the word discovered with kind of, quotes around it to a certain extent, but the people he put into movies for the first time, uh, Errol Flynn, John Garfield, Doris Day, Anne Blythe, Alexis Smith. I mean, uh, I don't think all of that just happened by accident. I thought Curtiz, I I believe Curtiz has a really discerning eye uh, in when looking and, and directing actors. Well, I thought it was interesting. Uh, you know, I would have said the moment when Cortez becomes Cortez is probably Captain Blood, that that's kind of his first big hit. But you make a really interesting case for a kind of overlooked film called Kid Galahad, that that really shows the flowering of his ability to handle actors, to how he shoots the boxing scenes, a bunch of things like that. Oh, absolutely. And that was in that movie was uh, really that movie has a lot to do with the Warner style that came out of the depression and the actors. So here you have a movie 
and made in 1937 that stars Edward G. Robinson, Betty Davis, and Humphrey Bogart. And Humphrey Bogart at that point was still playing heavies and, you know, was still getting uh, gut shot in the last reel and collapsing and so on and so forth. But I mean, it's a rousing action picture. It's one of the first pictures that took boxing and put it on screen where you could see scenes of of two boxers uh, realistically fighting uh, in the movies on screen. Uh, so I think it was an important picture. Another important picture before, just before uh, Captain Blood was a Black Fury with uh, Paul Muni who was really the big, the top star uh, at that time at Warner Brothers. And this had to do with uh, an immigrant coal miner who finds himself in the middle of a labor dispute between the mine owners and the workers. And this was certainly a subject that Warner Brothers, Jack Warner and Hal Wallace had to navigate very uh, adroitly. And, and that was one of the things Warners did is they could take controversial material, topical material, and then seemingly navigating it without taking sides or offending anyone. <laughs> they were, and they were very, they were very good at that. I mean, Black Fury, it ends up where it's these gangsters that are causing all the problems and the coal miners. And of course the union union busting, uh, uh mine owners are just good folks that, that want to do their job. So there's a certain cop out in some of this, but on the other hand, what other studio was producing movies? with this type of subject matter. Nobody, nobody else in Hollywood was except for Warner Brothers. So those were two important movies. But as you point out, Captain Blood really put him and Flynn uh, over the top and established a certain style. And it also separated the studio uh, and made kind of made Warner Brothers let Hal Wallace put his stamp on movies that moved away from, you know, the ripped from the headlines uh, really topical breakneck uh, uh, speed of Zanuck, whose career went back at Warner's to the Rin Tin Tin movies, and really allowed Hal Wallace to start putting his stamp on biographical films and historical films and swashbucklers and so on and so forth. Now, it's interesting you describe Cortez as kind of being somewhere down the totem pole below Archie Mayo and Lloyd Bacon and people like that. And then he finally gets to the top. And by this point in his career, you know, he, as you said earlier, he's, he's the go-to guy. Something's going wrong. You bring Cortez in to clean it up, to get the picture done fast and in a more exciting way. The big example of that, of course, being Adventures of Robin Hood, which he substantially reshoots a lot of uh, and, right. and finishes, which to me, you know, is is the first of several just basically perfect movies that that Cortez makes. I mean, there's just nothing you can say against Robin Hood, as far as I'm concerned. It's a picture that doesn't date. It doesn't. That picture is that the Adventures of Robin Hood is immune from dating. Yeah, <laughs> and you could show that you can show that movie a hundred years from now, and it'll still remain fresh and the energy that Cortez put into it. And he ended up reshooting a good deal of the picture and they ended up redoing it. And I really give credit to the Warners and Wallace uh, for all their penuriousness that I detail uh, uh, a lot in the book. Uh, they really went all in on Robin Hood and, and the, the budget ended up 
at more than $2 million, which was a lot of money in 1937-1938. But the unforgettable score and Curtiz's penchant for imbuing action, vitality, uh, and pace into the movie, and basically getting marrying forever uh, Errol Flynn and Olivia de Havilland as one of the ultimate screen studio co-star pairings of all time. So yeah, it's it's a great film. Well, you know, it's funny. You know, Eric Wolfgang Korgold just didn't think he could write the score for that. He didn't have any feeling for Robin Hood. And of course he writes like the greatest adventure score of all time at the end. But uh, Oh yeah. Yeah, definitely. But what's Corn funny? Gold, well, Korngold and the music department at Warner's was uh, where they they brought in Max Steiner and they so they had probably arguably the the two of the top five greatest music composers for film of all time at the same studio uh um you know and that that music department at warner brothers i think was key to their the success of their films but the irony through all of this then is that while Cortez is basically the miracle worker at the studio the guy who makes everything better when he touches it He's nevertheless subject to this constant stream of memos from Hal Wallace and (laughs) complaints from Warner passed down to Hal Wallace and everything else about how he's, you know, how dare he change a line? You know, what is this? What are all these extra shots he's shooting? And I, I, that's the thing that amazes me is how did he, how did he do all this and, and not become dispirited by this, you know, the, the, peck 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 of the ducks on you know all these yeah all these it, pictures. It, is, it is amazing it is amazing and i think he was able to block it all out uh and and the, the one of the interesting subtexts uh, to the book is the relationship between al hal wallace and and cortez because they became extremely close friends uh throughout this but if if you look at the arc of their relationship that that really got close after Zanuck left the studio in 1933 and Wallace uh, began producing all the major uh, productions. Wallace really appreciated Curtiz's drive and speed and his skill, but he couldn't bend Curtiz to his will. (laughs) He couldn't do it. And, and if you read those memos on Captain Blood and I, I, I kind of summarize that, but there were so many of these vitrolic, what the hell are you doing? You're, this is stupid. I told you not to do this. Really insulting memos. And Curtis just blocked it out and kept going. And then finally, on uh, the charge of the Light Brigade, Wallace finally gets fed up because, because in, in somewhat of a defense of Wallace, Curtis was just completely blowing him off and doing whatever he wanted to do. And not even making a, uh, 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 not even pretending to even listen to Wallace or at all compromise. And Wallace basically tells him, look, you either have to start doing this or, you know, he's going to fire him off the picture. So at that point, Curtis started to compromise more. And this was like letting the two shots run full and more close ups and less less uh, uh less shots of uh you know Errol Flynn being photographed through a moving water wheel and <laughs> all of this composition stuff that that Curtiz loved so much and uh when Robin Hood became such a big success and 
Wallace, uh, in effect, had put all his chips on the table and they got this resounding success, he and Curtis became closer and they became very, very close. And even though the memos would still in the future criticize uh, Curtis and question, you know, hey, we're, we're running out of money. Why do you have to shoot 40 angles of Errol Flynn sitting around a table with a bunch of guys dressed up in uh, uh, you know, uh, Confederate uniforms or whatever it is, uh, the demeaning tone of the criticism from Wallace basically ceased because he realized how brilliant Curtiz was as a director and also that his destiny as a producer at Warner Brothers was closely tied to Curtiz's destiny as a director. And they both, in effect, rose together. A man? No, a brute completely without feeling or conscience, who stalks the sea with all the lust and cunning of a wolf. A sea wolf. My strength justifies me, Mr. Van Wyden. The fact that I can kill you and let you live as I choose. The fact that I control the destinies of all on board the ship. The fact that it's my will and my will alone that rules here. You're a man, huh? I've spit in the eye of better men than you for saying less. You're disobeying orders, Leach. I don't like the way you give them. <laughs> You know, everybody talks about Cas- Casablanca or whatever, but uh, there's two films in particular that just got um, DVD and Blu-ray releases that I want to talk about because they're ones I had not seen before, and I think they kind of show a different side of Cortez's work, different than the sort of flag-waving pop popularity of those 40s films. Um, the first one is sure. The, the Seawolf. Uh, a very dark, not exactly noir, but one of those things that's starting to point in that direction. Uh, kind of film with a lot of Nietzscheanism in the in the storyline. Um, not something you expect that Cortez could have done. What do you think about that film? Oh, I love the film, and I think the fact that Warner Brothers and and particularly uh, George Feltenstein, one of my heroes. Um, was able to get the 14 minutes of footage. And for those, for those of your listeners not up to speed on this, what happened with the Seawolf, which was made in 1941, uh, Jack Warner reissued that in, I believe, uh, 47 or 48, and put the Seawolf on a double bill with the Seahawk. That, that made sense to, to Jack. Like, Seawolf, <laughs> Seahawk, you know, hey, that'll, that'll sell. And, uh, but in order to do that, in order to fit them on a double bill, they had to cut footage out of both films. Well, the Seahawk, the footage was eventually retrieved and the film was restored. But the Sea Wolf, that footage was missing for like 70 years. And they finally found a, uh, a, a negative that had been restored, apparently, by the Museum of Modern Art in a film can. Uh, and so the punchline is, is that the Seahawk now has been digitally restored to its full length because there were 14 minutes missing from it. So the original length of the film was 100 minutes. So if you take 14 minutes out, that's significant. And so now it's back to where it was. Uh, Warner Brothers has released it on uh, Blu-ray. And I'm having the honor of hosting the first a screening of it in a commercial theater in 70 years in its restored state on December 7th at the Egyptian theater in Hollywood. And I'll be signing my Curtiz book and we're going to play the Seawolf 
followed by the breaking point, which I can't think of a, a better double bill than that, or better Curtis double bill for sure. But at any rate, the Seawolf is really, if you read Jack London's novel, it's really a dark type of film. And there's always a disconnect, or there's a disconnect between how Warner Brothers publicized their films and what was in their films very often. Yeah. <laughs> and this film was publicized, even with these quotes from Curtiz, as this swashbuckling adventure. And as you pointed out, that's not the way the film is at all. It's an exercise in nautical dread. And uh, the screenwriter was a fellow by the name of Robert Rossen, uh, who uh, was a son of a rabbi, came from the Lower East Side of New York, and joined Warner Brothers and um, in the 1930s and wrote a lot of good films, including They Won't Forget, uh, Racket Busters, a lot of films of social consciousness. And Rossen, Rossen was a communist uh, during the 1930s. And so a, a lot of what is in the film, the, the whole Wolf, Wolf Larsen thing, there is a whole undercurrent of fascism and totalitarianism. And this is in keeping with the whole Warner anti-Nazi, anti-war type of theme that, that, that permeated a lot of their films during this period, including a whole series of patriotic American shorts that celebrated American exceptionalism and so on and so forth. So uh, uh, the, the Seawolf is a unique film. It has one of the great screen performances by Edward G. Robinson as Wolf Larson. And, and uh, I, I don't think anyone can uh, disagree with the assessment that Edward G. Robinson was one of the greatest movie actors of the 20th century. And this performance somehow gets overlooked. And then co-starring you have, John Garfield, who was thrilled to be reunited with Curtis because Curtis really discovered him and put him into Three Daughters, four daughters. which was a huge hit in 19... 19- four Daughters, thank you, uh, which was a huge hit and um, really launched Garfield's career, nominated him for an Oscar, and Ida Lupino, uh, along with Alexander Knox and Howard De Silva. And the other thing was remarkable about it from a production point of view is the entire film, which most of the film is shot on this set <coughs> of a ship that was built in stage 21 on the Warner lot in Burbank, which is still standing. And Warner's built this stage where you could have two ships in it. The stage could be flooded. The ship model could be tilted on hydraulic rams as if in a storm or as if navigating. There's this basically a cyclorama that gives you the horizon, a wave machine. So the illusion of being at sea is extremely realistic in this. And and of course, a great supporting cast, a real odious portrayal by Barry Fitzgerald. And this was before the the John Ford, Barry Fitzgerald, the quiet man and all of this. And, And Barry plays a very odious character, Gene Lockhart as the doctor who comes to a tragic end. Yeah, he's he's great. The Seawolf is he's great. I mean, the casting and the performances in the Seawolf are just phenomenal. 
And I think it's one of Curtiz's overlooked great films. It's really a, a magnificent film. Well, and the other one you mentioned along the way, which is The Breaking Point. Criterion put that out a couple of months back. And it's right. a remake of To Have and Have Not, but filmed very differently. Uh, this very neorealist feel to it that I think is also kind of in Young Man with a Horn around the same time, which is not something you expect to see coming from Curtiz either. Well, I think Curtiz, one of his mantras, as I mentioned earlier, was realism. And of course, when you're working at the studio, even when Curtiz accumulated some degree of power, you still had to do what Jack Warner wanted you to do and wanted the films that he wanted you to make in the end. But uh, The Breaking Point is is one of, I think it's Curtiz's greatest post-war, post-World War II movie. Uh, the, the difference to having to have not really how Hawks took that and he moved it all to France and really to having to have not is kind of a it, it closer it has bears a closer resemblance to Casablanca than it does to Hemingway's book uh in in the breaking point uh Renald McDougall uh scripted Hemingway's book and they moved it from Cuba and the setting in Hemingway's book was set in Cuba changed the characters around and now it's an exercise in post-war film noir with Garfield as a as uh, someone that got the Navy Cross and was a decorated uh, soldier in World War II. And he comes back and he's struggling to make a go of it with his boat. And that's all he knows. He has a very loyal, loving wife, two little kids. His wife is beaten down by by struggles and poverty, but she's not broken. They're still in love. And so Garfield is trying to figure his way out of that. And it ends up being kind of the classic, uh, the protagonist caught in the classic noir dilemma where he's presented with a bunch of bad choices and makes the worst one. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, uh, and uh, so it's really, really a great film. And the backstory to it uh, that is also just as tragic as the film is that Initially, it was perceived by the producer, Jerry Wald, who never gets enough credit for some of the, the terrific films that he made. He was a terrific producer. And uh, Curtiz, originally, Warner said, you know, I think we've got something here uh, similar to Casablanca. Well, what happened, and I went into this on the Criterion Blu-ray, because they have about 20 minutes of me talking about the movie and talking about Curtiz and so forth. But uh, what happened was is Red Channels came out and listed Garfield in the summer of 1950, right when the breaking point was in post-production. And Jack Warner immediately caved. Uh, Garfield had come back after um, having his own independent production company with Bob Roberts, and he had come back on a two-picture deal, the breaking point to Warner Brothers. The breaking point was the first picture, and Warner Brothers immediately let Garfield go, and he he in fact buried the picture. It was released with very little publicity, even though it starred Garfield and Patricia Neal, and was was issued once and then just slowly died. It got a great review from, of all people, Bosley Crowther, who seemingly spent a career at the New York Times hating movies <laughs> and reviewing most of them in those in that fashion for some reason. And uh, uh, so it was a very sad story. It was basically the breaking point was killed by the blacklist. 
and it was it virtually came out and went away. And so now it has been rediscovered uh, going back several years. I showed it at my annual festival in Palm Springs, my uh, the Arthur Lyons Film Noir Festival about uh, eight years ago. And I had uh, Sherry Jackson, who played one of Garfield's children there as a the guest. And the Film Foundation restored a 35 millimeter print uh, of it. Uh, some years ago, and now Criterion has put it out on Blu-ray, and I'm very happy to see that. But it's a it's a great movie. I think it's John Garfield's best performance, arguably his best performance. And he said so. My he said so himself. He said, "I think it's better than Body and Soul." Body and Soul, and there's not too much Garfield did that's better than that. Well, let's talk about uh, you know Warner's had a famously contentious. Uh, relationship with many of its top stars, many of them suited at some point or, you know, expressed a lot of displeasure with what they were cast in and things like that. Um, and it's interesting that a lot of them, I mean, like Cagney, for instance, kind of comes to the realization he doesn't really like Cortez, but he knows how good he is. And there's a little bit of the same way from Cortez. He didn't like actors who were troublemakers. But if you recognize that an actor was making trouble for the good of the picture, as opposed to just his own ego, you know, then he respected that. And so they seem to have come to kind of an uneasy truce. And obviously the result is things like Yankee Doodle Dandy. Betty Davis, famously troublesome, um, yet he seems to get along with her enough to the point where they were talking about her for life of the father which is bizarre to me uh that would have totally... yeah i that would have been i i think i mentioned that that would have been a a major mistake uh casting her in life with father but but she was the star but interestingly uh concerning his relationship with betty davis betty davis did not like him did not want to work with him at all uh, and when she got to a point where she could, uh, she got enough power, uh, when she was quote unquote, the fourth Warner brother, uh, she did not work with him. And I mean, when you think of it, Davis stayed at Warner brothers until 1949, uh, with Curtiz, but Curtiz never directed her, um, after Elizabeth and Essex, which was in 1939. Yeah. So Davis really didn't want any part of her uh, or any part of, of working for Curtiz because Curtiz was more interested in the movie and the camera uh, than, you know, her. And, and so there was that. Uh, certainly Cagney had a good professional relationship with Curtiz because Curtiz respected Cagney. Cagney was, was someone at that point that really directed himself that was really knowledgeable and brought good ideas to the fore and had a lot of power as well. And, uh, you know, what Cagney didn't like about Curtiz, I believe the quote was, he said, Mike was a pompous bastard who didn't know how to treat actors, but he sure as hell knew how to treat a camera. So if you got through a film with him, you could be sure it was well done. But like I said, he didn't know how to treat actors and he let me alone because he knew I'd knock him on his ass if he didn't. Right. <laughs> you know? So, so, uh, you know, and, and at one point I think in captains of the clouds, uh, Curtiz was berating some bit actor and Cagney took him aside and chewed him out. And he said, Oh, Jimmy, I, I'm a shit heel. No. And 
tagged me and said, you're a shit heel, yes. <laughs> and he said there was no reason for Curtiz to be mean, and I, he vented pressure, Curtiz did, by picking on people that really couldn't fight back. And that's another character trait that is not in any way admirable, not unusual in Hollywood then or now, but certainly not not admirable. But he was very deferential to the stars. I mean, he... Curtis had this very paradoxical personality where he could be very kind and thoughtful. He tried to keep extras on salary during Christmas. In fact, if you look at the production notes from Casablanca and other pictures, you see him trying to keep people on salary and Wallace who, who followed up on every detail saying, why are you keeping all these people on salary? We can't afford this. You know? Um, so he could be kind in many ways, but he also, could be a real SOB as he was with the sound guy on Casablanca. Uh, that I go into the first day of shooting on Casablanca. Uh, the sound guy tells him, Hey, I can't record on this set because of the ceiling was cantilevered. I'm not picking it up. And he says, Oh, shut up. You stupid sound guy. And finally the sound guy basically tells him where to go. And then Curtis has to make up a lie over why that scene didn't get shot that day and said, oh, the arc lamp wasn't working right or something. And uh, it was all because the, he wouldn't listen to the sound guy because when he was directing silent films and sound came in, these uh, the early sound people, the Western electric people, he had to cede control of his set to this, to these folks, and he hated them. And he always liked blaming the sound guy and using them as his verbal pinata so to speak so um uh but cagney recognized him as a good director and cagney didn't have a lot of respect for a lot of directors because he thought a lot of the advice he got was kind of self-aggrandizing baloney uh, but he had respect for curtis even though he didn't approve for him bogart had the same type of attitude he hated the way curtis treated the quote-unquote little people but he respected Curtiz as a great director where when Bogart got an exclusive contract in the late forties, he was able to name the four or five uh, directors that he would work with. And it was, you know, John Huston and Cromwell and a few others. And one of them on the list was Curtiz uh, because he knew that he was, he was a, a, a terrific director, even though he didn't approve to approve of him personally. And, and so I think that's largely true. On the other hand, there are people that really liked him. Uh, Anne Blythe, who I interviewed for the book, uh, she agreed to talk to me because she was very fond of, of Mike, as she called him, became his friend. And, um, you know, he selected her personally for uh, uh, Vita and Mildred Pierce. And then he used her again in 57 for the Helen Morgan story where they tested just about every uh, actress in Hollywood or tried to get them for that picture, uh, which, which didn't work out. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a success by any measure, but I asked Ann Blythe, I said, why did you like, uh, why did you like him so much? And she said, because I always felt that he was in my corner and he was always would say and do amazing things. Sam Goldwyn Jr. Uh, who used him on uh, two of his pictures, The Proud Rebel and The Adventures Huckleberry Finn, said, uh, you know, he was a handful, but he knew so much and would do so many amazing things on the set. He said, I just thought he was, he was wonderful. So there was this paradoxical 
uh, aspect of, of Pertees and actors. Joan Crawford in Mildred Pierce said, he gave me a postgraduate course in humiliation and then he trained me. <laughs> uh, um, yeah, so it, uh, I, I think the best uh, summary of his dichotomy was, again, Hal Moore, the cameraman, who said, I enjoyed Mike very much. He was a ruthless, he was a ruthless son of a bitch. Uh, he had absolutely no regard for anybody's feelings, but he was a very kindly guy. <laughs> you know, so, so, so go figure. Errol Flynn, they made, I believe, 12 films together. Uh, and I think it's fair to say that Errol hated him. Uh, there, there's no, you know, I mean, hate is a strong word, but when you try to, when you physically attack someone and try to strangle them as Errol reputedly did, um, uh, on their last picture, uh, I don't think hate is too strong a word. He just, he didn't like critiques. He didn't like Errol did not like being turned into a swashbuckler and being in these films that he considered like a kid's comic book and being turned into a caricature. Errol wrote a couple novels, including Beam Ends, and he, he, uh, you know, Errol was hedonistic and there was a lot of insecurities involved and so on. And, and Curtis could be very impatient. And the other thing is Errol was a handful to work with over time because of uh, alcohol and then later drugs and he was late and he had trouble memorizing dialogue. And, and you see that in the correspondence, the uh, archival correspondence and the production memos and the production reports. Um, but uh, Curtis appreciated Errol and, because Errol, who else could play Robin Hood? Who else could be in the Seahawk? I don't know of any other actor at that time or even now that could bring the vivaciousness, the vitality and the authenticity to those types of roles. So again, I think Curtis appreciated the movie stars and was also nurtured by them as, as many directors were during that time. Thanks to my guest, Alan K. Rohde, and to Mac McCormick at the University Press of Kentucky. And since this is the last show of the year, thanks to all my guests this year. If you're looking for holiday gifts, I'll have links to all the things we talked about this year, at least the ones that you can wrap and give, in the show post for this show at nitrateville.com. Theme music is by Kevin McLeod. Nitrateville Radio will be back after the first of the year. But in the meantime, you can make sure that you know about it when it comes back and help us continue to build an audience by subscribing to Nitrateville Radio at iTunes, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, and by leaving a rating and a review at iTunes. So thanks, happy holidays, and remember, every time someone leaves a rating at iTunes, Peter Laurie gets his wings. See you next year!